Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about Diamonds Are Forever, starring Sean Connery, Jill St. John, Charles Gray, Lana Wood, Jimmy Dean, directed by Guy Hamilton. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stewart in L.A. Well, Mr. Brock, Mr. Stewart, this is Arnie. <laughs> you sound more like Mr. Rogers than Mr. Kid, but whatever. <laughs> I had a feeling he was going to go there, and I'm glad he did. So we are here with Diamonds Are Forever. James Bond enters the 70s with our seventh James Bond movie. Sean Connery is back as James Bond. How the hell did this happen? I thought he wanted off You Only Live Twice. It was clear at that point he was looking a little fatigued. I felt like he was the weakest element of that one I really enjoyed. So the fact that they were able to get him back after recasting him... I understand why they didn't go back to Lazenby. Whatever that story is, it wasn't entirely working. I am surprised they went back to Connery. I'm guessing it had something to do with Ka and Ching, and odds are Connery wouldn't even allow the studio to include Lube as part of their negotiations. You're both right and wrong. They actually recast the role. A man named John Gavin, an American, was actually signed to play James Bond in this movie. If you adjust for inflation, on Her Majesty's Secret Service is still one of the lowest earning bonds there is. And one of the most expensive. I mean, you can't tell me all that Alp stuff didn't cost a pretty penny. Oh, they were behind schedule of works. It still, I don't think, made its money back. So they came back to Diamonds Are Forever. They decided what we were talking about before in the last podcast, go a different direction. They were going to go American. But then the U.A., said, you know, we have a different idea for this. Why don't we try to entice Connery back? And what they did to get Connery back is very simple, is what Arnie said. It was ka-ching. They paid him $1.2 million to come back to the role. And get this, Connery donates every single cent of it to charity. Wow. Mm -hmm. He did it for charity. Well, Mm -hmm. that's noble. That might be the nicest thing I say about him in this movie. So they get him back, and everybody realized after the last one, if this one doesn't work, Bond as a franchise could really, really be in trouble. So they decided that what really worked as a Bond movie was Goldfinger. They decided to make this movie like Goldfinger, down to getting back the same person, the theme song, the director, and even the plot. The original plot was going to be Goldfinger's twin brother. Really? Yeah. And obviously, when you watch the movie, I mean, instead of gold as diamonds, it's very similar to Goldfinger in a lot of ways. You know what? I didn't get a whole lot of Goldfinger out of looking at it. In retrospect... Yeah, I guess I can kind of see. It's definitely a return to the camp. It definitely was an attempt to return to a more, I think, outlandish story. It, it's surprising to me that they kind of drop all of the serious, sort of hard-edged qualities of the last one and just make it more silly. 
I think they amped up the camp, Stuart, actually. I don't think they returned to it. I think they times 10 it. I wouldn't say times 10, maybe times one and a half. It's a bit more campy than before. Maybe it's how Connery's playing it. But thank God, I'm just happy to say I was so up for the lighthearted fair that we are going to be discussing. All right, well, let's give him a plot. In the opening scene, we see James Bond going after Blofeld. The murder of Bond's wife in the previous film made this personal, and Bond has tracked Blofeld to a plastic surgery center where Blofeld is having a double made to throw off MI6. Bond kills Blofeld, throwing him into a mud bath before the credits start. And the personal mission is over. So M assigns Bond to look into a diamond smuggling operation. Bond poses as Peter Franks, a known smuggler, and infiltrates the ring to smuggle the diamonds to the States. He meets his contact, Tiffany Case, and gets the diamond stateside where he's attacked by the assassin duo, Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid. The two assassins work for reclusive billionaire Willard White, a casino owner who orchestrated the diamond theft. Bond escapes when it's discovered the diamonds he delivered were fakes, but now White's gang is going after Bond and the diamonds, and Tiffany as well, as she wants to steal the diamonds herself. Bond investigates finally breaking into White's apartment complex, only to discover White had been kidnapped and replaced by... Blofeld! The man killed in the opening scenes was a double, and Blofeld had replaced White, who hadn't been seen in five years, so when Blofeld had a voice duplicator, no one suspected he wasn't the real boss. Blofeld stole the diamonds, not for their value, but to focus a super laser that he has on a satellite in space to destroy nuclear missiles of the U.S., USSR, and China, where Blofeld would give nuclear supremacy to the country with the highest bid. Bond is taken by Winton Kidd to be killed, but he escapes again and Blofeld goes to the mission center off the coast of Baja. The real White is rescued and realizes he has no facility in Baja, so Bond infiltrates and finds Tiffany there as well. Bond is again captured and Felix Leiter and the CIA attack the rig. Blofeld tries to escape at a sub, but Bond crashes it, causing the base to be destroyed and the satellite left without any controls. So Tiffany and Bond try to relax after that when a final attack comes by Winton Kidd. Bond fights them both off, killing them, and sails off into the night with Tiffany. Again, as the newbie here, I had no idea what to expect with this film. I was kind of thinking Connery's back. He was batting about 500 with me, so I wasn't sure what to expect. And then, in the opening scenes, he kills Blofeld. And I'm thinking, after the last movie, I was so torn up with Lazenby about the death of his wife. And I'm like, wow, because they brought Connery back, they are just flushing the last movie. They're flushing Spectre. They're flushing Blofeld. How can any mission just assigned by MI6 be anywhere near as important as getting Blofeld, and now it's the opening credits scene. I was stunned, because I had no clue he'd come back later. Because of the actor that they cast, and because that actor is on the cover of the DVD art, I knew that he'd have to, and I think I even remembered this way. This actor that plays Blofeld this time, first of all, he's got hair. Second of all, we've seen him before. This was the helper that got stabbed and you only live twice. I knew that guy in the kimono had to be bad. It just took another movie to reinvent him. I figured, well, they cast a shitty actor because they kill him in the opening scene. Why get a good Blofeld? 
And I do believe there is a, a Bond coming up where they do kill Blofeld in the beginning and he is not the villain in it later. I think you're both remembering for your eyes only the last time and this time. Absolutely. What gets me about this opening scene, Arnie, is they are definitely trying to throw out the trash from the last movie, quote unquote. And I think they tip their hand completely when they talk about plastic surgery and everything at the beginning of this scene with Blofeld. It's so quick, and for all the consequence that it should have, if he's actually killing Blofeld here, and the battles are so impersonal for something that should be so personal, I wasn't buying it at all. And I, of course, I've seen this movie before, but this viewing, I didn't buy it at all. I think what they're doing is they're trying to not recall the movie too much, as you say, but I also think they don't want to call attention to the fact that it's not Lazenby. Lazenby was the one that had the wife, so it wouldn't make sense for Connery to be the one grieving over her. There's a continuity disconnect here. So the camera is actually POV. The camera is looking at people as they're grabbed by the lapels or being punched. We're not even seeing Bond when he's going through the casino in Cairo or choking that girl on the beach. It's unpleasant. It would have helped, I think, if it had been Lazenby because we could have understood the rage. Here, it just looks like Connery doesn't seem very happy. I had some problems with Blofeld in the opening scene, like he's standing behind Bond with a whole bunch of knives. Bond is throwing knives at other people and Blofeld's just standing there. I'm like, what happened to the Blofeld that was ready to shoot Bond? He's just standing there. I'm not liking anything about this Blofeld. And the opening scene, I was just so stunned that they took out Blofeld and now he's back at MI6 as vacation over that I can't even really form an opinion other than I felt it was such a mistake. But what a great ruse to play on people like me. If you're seeing this for the first time and know nothing, it was a good trick. Not as good as killing the wife last time, but good. It's also a reversal of what I would call a classic teaser scenario of James Bond getting killed. This time it's Blofeld getting killed. And so if you've watched these movies like we have so close together, that might actually stick out to you more as it did for me. Usually when I watch these movies, I don't watch them so closely together. This one hit like a ton of bricks. The wife's death was so impactful and important. It was the key to the whole movie last time. I really feel like they needed to do one step beyond what they did here. I mean, here when he kills Blofeld, they cut to the credits by cutting to the cat and having the diamond twinkle on its collar. Yeah, that's the cute way to do it. I think I would appreciate it more if we had seen Bond's wedding band or her diamond ring and he threw it into the mud and said, welcome to hell. If he really sold us on that moment that I'm killing you because of her, I would have liked that better. As it is, this whole death by mud bath, not very satisfying. And plastic surgery, I learned in my research for this, was sort of a newer thing or a topic of the day. So it was really kind of a new kind of spin for the time to include in a movie. I agree with you, Stuart. It's kind of weird that he dies that way. That's not how you kill the man that killed your wife. I agree with you both. It just felt so anticlimactic, but yet I did fall for it. I just thought that this was the shaft they were giving Blofeld. And it takes a long time to get back to Blofeld. There is a whole series of events and a whole chain of pseudo-bad guys. I agree with you. There are so many I wouldn't have predicted that Blofeld was going to be at the end of this, only because it took so goddamn long to get through all of them. But when we start here, you know, Bond is being reassigned. There's no more Blofeld. Time to give you what I would characterize as a much less prestigious assignment. We got some diamond smuggling happening. And I was disappointed. I thought we might actually get a movie partially set in South Africa. But no, there's a couple scenes with Africans kind of smuggling diamonds out through a dentist. But for the most part, the whole chain goes into Europe again. 
You mentioned last time, Stuart, that the tone was different, and you could tell pretty much right away that they were doing things differently in that movie. Well, here, with this opening scene when they explain the diamond smuggling, we have the official from MI6 telling us the story of the smuggling, much like we got in Goldfinger. But instead of actually seeing what he's talking about, we see the exact opposite, a funny rendition of guys stealing diamonds, trustworthy employees, as he's talking about, actually helping smuggle the diamonds out of South Africa with a dentist, etc. If this doesn't give you away that the tone of this movie is completely different than the last one or even a couple of other James Bond movies, then I don't know if you're paying attention, because this certainly gives it away to me that the tone of this thing is going much broader in its comedy. Yeah, when the dentist is literally extracting a giant twinkling diamond out of a man's mouth and he's giving a grin and then the next guy's coming in. Any hope that I had that this was going to be Blood Diamond and we were going to deal with warlords and child soldiers and the whole Sierra Leone conflict? Uh, no, that's not what they're here to do. This is more a series of buffoons. I didn't really get it with this because, again, you guys beat me for asking about logic in James Bond plots. So I'm like, okay. Diamonds and teeth. All right. Can't question it. So I was with it. But when it hit me that this movie had a different tone was when the two assassins show up, Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid. And strangely, I recognized Wint immediately. And it's only because I happened to go see Crispin Glover's movies at a private art house very recently. I totally agree. The guy looked familiar and I couldn't place him. And then I looked up the actor's name and even then I wasn't getting it. I was like, who the hell is Bruce Glover? Bruce Glover? Bruce Glover? And then at some point, and I think it came at the ending, it really clicked of like, oh, Crispin's dad. Here's the thing. His performance here in the very first scene, they're in the desert. He's giving these line readings. He's got this smile. Having seen Crispin Glover a lot, both live and on screen, I got Crispin Glover performance off of this, but I've also seen Bruce Glover in Crispin Glover's film, It Is Fine, Everything Is Fine, and then Crispin spoke at length about his father. I don't think I ever knew he was in a James Bond film or anything I'd ever seen, but he looks pretty similar these days. It's been many years. The years were kind to him, and I can't help but see Crispin Glover aping his father now. Because everything in this performance is what Crispin has made his trademark. Agreed. If you ever wanted to see Crispin Glover as a Bond villain, this might be our only opportunity. I don't know if he'll ever get invited back, but here it is. Here's the goofy guy. Once I realized it was his father, and I've seen this movie many, many times, and until I was blatantly told <laughs> in my research, but now I can't not see it. It reminded me a little bit of Crispin Glover in Charlie's Angels and how great his character was in that. I saw Back to the Future Crispin Glover in this. I saw Willard Crispin Glover in this. I saw the Family Ties guest star episode Crispin Glover in this. Everything Crispin Glover has ever done can be boiled down to his father's performance in this movie. I think they're enjoyable to watch. They work off each other so well, and they're kind of quirky and fun. And this opening scene here is a great introduction to these two characters and what they're going to do for the rest of the movie. It completely works for me. And maybe it's the Crispin Glover connection, or maybe it's just the fact that these two are such a great pairing with their very relaxed dialogue and their very subdued happiness at their job well done. <laughs> Nothing about this performance is subdued, Arnie. No, I mean, it's not like they're giggling and giddy, but they're obviously pleased with themselves in a very laid-back kind of way. I 
love these two. They have outdone Odd Job as favorite henchmen for me. My only complaint about them is they weren't on screen more. Okay, well, I'll say what you guys aren't saying, which is that they're so laid back because they're a little light in the loafers. Gay issues had been coming to the fore. This was 1971, and between Stonewall and Midnight Cowboy, people were starting to learn about gay subculture. This is a ridiculous, dare I say, minstrel show of gay killer villains. I mean, it's silly. They hold hands, for Christ's sake. It's really rather (laughs) ridiculous. But, you know, Bond has never been progressive in its treatment towards women or any other minority. I mean, it's not offensive, but it is ridiculous. I find it strange that you guys love this. It's one of the more colorful aspects of what I would call a rather drab entry in the series. But love these henchmen? Well... Uh, no. Stuart, obviously they want us to know they're gay because they hold hands, and there's that one scene later on when he says she's attractive for a woman, and the other guy gives him a really nice character look. But they tell you they're gay, but they're not playing gay the whole time. <laughs> they it's are, not- actually. Actually, they kind of are. And, like, how does he even get rid of one at the end? He, like, does some maneuver and straps a bomb to his balls and then kicks him out. I mean, they definitely are targeting them. Part of their loathsome quality is the fact that they're gay and mysterious. It's not a positive portrayal. They are so weird. And, again, Crispin Glover is weird as he portrays himself on screen. They were just so weird that I even took the holding hands I didn't think gay. You were the only one, Arnie. Even I, as an eight-year-old, or whenever I saw this, knew that there was something more going on here. I'm usually pretty quick to pick up on these things, but when they have the, she's quite fetching for a woman, I'm like, oh, are they trying to subtly say they're gay? (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you picked up on that. I'm agreeing with Arnie to an extent. I knew they were gay, but I wasn't reminded they were gay the entire time. I was seeing weird maliciousness more than gay all the time, which make fun of gay people, gay people, gay people. I'm right there. I think it's just so off the wall of portrayal, and I 100% credit this to Bruce Glover. And the fact that the other guy looks like Floyd from the Muppets. Those two combined, it's not like they were stereotypes to me. They were just weird, messed up people. And because they were killers, I just took them as strange killer types, not as Brock so wonderfully did. Gay! I think that they were so clueless as to the subculture, they didn't even know how to offensively characterize it. It was in the book. You can go listen to my books and nachos that came out last week on Diamonds Are Forever. These characters were kind of there. They play a little bit differently, but you can hear all about it over there. Anyway, for the longest time, they're really the villains. Before we get back to Blofeld, they're the ones that are bumping everyone off in this chain as it goes from South Africa through Holland into America. Every time someone successfully gets a diamond over a border, they meet Kid and Went and meet their death. Again, as Arnie keeps mentioning to us, we are punching him when he talks about logic. But I have to call out logic here for me, because, again, when you don't think about how the plot works, the Bond movies are more successful. 
But here we have Wint and Kid killing everybody who's in touch with these diamonds. So are these the last diamonds they're going to smuggle out of South Africa? Because they're killing everybody. It doesn't make much sense to me why you would kill these people who clearly have done this for them many times before. They don't give me an explanation on why they're cleaning house. They may be reaching the limits for how many diamonds they need. This may indeed be the last one because we'll find out the whole point of getting the diamonds is not about wealth. Oddly enough, Blofeld, even though he wants to get rich, sees that he can make more money from diamonds by putting them on a killer satellite than just hawking them on the black market. But yes, it may be cleaning house because we don't need to smuggle diamonds anymore. I also thought that Kid and Went weren't part of the operation. I mean, I felt like the dentist always did this, and I felt like Tiffany Case always did this. These guys were interlopers. They came in, killed the dentist, they killed the helicopter that would normally transport the diamonds, they get their own courier, that old lady, and they go a different way. I felt like that they were breaking into an already established ring. I don't think that this is always how they get the diamonds. But it's not clear. I've got to say right off the bat, this is hands down the hardest Bond plot for me to follow. Because they're trying to show us an entire ring from the time that the diamond is dug up to it landing in a space satellite, it really goes all over the map. I was able to follow that part, Stuart. I really was. I got it, and I think Winton Kidd helped connect it. You can explain to me why a stand-up comedian in Vegas is part of a smuggling ring and why they had to bump him off? This 80-year-old peer of Sammy Davis is like a target? I was confused by that myself. I don't know why the stand-up comedian is there. No, I can't explain that part, no. But (laughs) I can explain to you the courier and how the whole thing works and that we're seeing the entire thing and why Bond is going to Tiffany Case as somebody else to infiltrate the ring. I followed all of that. I got more confused with the stand-up comedian and why they have a fake moon landing place. I started getting confused later. Yeah, this entire plot is really hard to follow. All you really need to understand is they're taking diamonds to build a space laser. Because it takes so long for Blofeld to come back, and because we have so many subpar villains and henchmen in the meantime, it really is tedious and the mind wanders and you just feel like it does not connect for me. So many of these Bond stories are so convoluted and so stretched that I often find myself going, all right, why exactly is this specific thing happening? I had it in the last movie with the safe cracking device. The difference for me between a good Bond movie and a bad Bond movie, because again, you guys browbeat me, isn't if it makes sense, but if it's enjoyable to watch. And what you said is that you aren't having fun watching it. The fact that I may not entirely follow the entire thing with the funeral home and the stand-up comedian doesn't necessarily matter because I'm really enjoying the characters in this, primarily those two killers, but I'm liking our Bond in this one, too. I'll go ahead and say it. I miss Lazenby. Lazenby is the Bond I know that impersonates other characters. Lazenby was best when he was being funny. If they're going to go winky and campy this time, this needed a Lazenby. It did not need this sour, I'm having a bad time, I'm only doing this for children's charity, Connery. Connery is having no fun here. He looks miserable. I thought he looked like he was having fun here. He's constantly smirking and smiling. I got a deft, fun performance from him. 
I don't know where you got that from, Arnie. I got certain scenes where he was wonderful, and I liked the elevator fight, for example. I did not find that this was a Bond that I wanted to hang out with. I found him to be bored and old-looking. I don't mind if a Bond is old if he can bring it the way he was walking. Guy. I said the same thing in You Only Live Twice. I feel like he's going through motions. But he does have some wonderful moments throughout the movie that it does work that he's James Bond for me. But this is not from Usher with Love or Goldfinger. This is You Only Live Twice worse. I don't know where you get fun and depth from. I would like to know where. I agreed with you guys on the old thing on the last one, but here I think it's the performance. I don't see him having trouble walking in this, and where I see him having fun is when Plenty O'Toole shows up. I mean, that's a great scene, and you know, it wasn't until like the next day after I'd watched this that I realized exactly what he's saying when he says you're named after your father. That one was a very slow burn for me. But his scenes with Tiffany, his scenes with Felix, his scenes with the killer, this is a Bond who's commanding my attention in this movie, and I am with it. Maybe it's after a walk through a desert with Lazenby, I needed the drink of Connery. And I'm going with the more fun, funny, campy environment that they're giving us, 100%. I know it's a sign of what's to come with Roger Moore from rumor and reputation, but... That's good things for me, because I'm liking it here. Maybe I'll continue to like it. For me, this movie works with the other characters with Bond. The reason I like parts of this movie is not really Bond. I like Jill St. John. I like the two assassins. There's so much character going on everywhere else but Bond. I find Bond to be drab and boring here. Okay, let's talk about the woman that he's paired with. Who is Jill St. John? Did she do anything of note? I mean, I know a lot of these Bond women aren't anything more than beauty contestants and models, but she's got a familiar look to me. She looks like she was the star of Heart to Heart. I don't know that. I do know that she, unlike a lot of other Bond women, has been working since she was a child. Just like Lana Wood, who played Plenty O'Toole, they both have been working since childhood. She was originally signed to play Plenty. When Connery came back instead of the other guy they signed, they bumped her up to the lead. I think she's great. She has that swagger and confidence down pat. She reminds me of TV, and that got an impression in my head that kept building as this went on. The unhappy, middle-aged man kind of going through a shambling mystery that makes no sense, but he connects the dot, and the younger, hotter woman trying to spruce it all up. It just started to feel like Bond the TV show. This would be kind of TV-quality mystery you'd get any Friday night on NBC at this time. I'm almost guessing they had to pay Bond so much that there was no money left over for the rest of this thing. This movie looks chintzy and tacky. Well, they're in Vegas, Stuart. It has to look tacky. <laughs> Oof. That is a bad choice. I know they do it in the novel. I know that he eventually had to get there, and I know he's a gambler by trade. So, of course, Vegas, baby. But once you actually see it, the horribleness of this is all too evident that they've wound up in Vegas. I never want to see Bond in Circus Circus again. I don't want to see anyone I like <laughs> in Circus Circus. I was a little bit stunned they went to the circus, but I was happy to see him in Vegas. I mean, he's traveling the world's locales. Vegas is a big one for international tourism. And I don't know a whole lot about Vegas' history, where it was in the 70s, but I kind of liked that the casino owner was the supposed villain. 
Because he had the control of the cops, he seemed omnipresent and unstoppable. And he was a different type of evil than Blofeld, is what I was thinking before I knew it was Blofeld. Because this is the kind of criminal who operates above the law instead of outside the law. He buys the cops instead of just fleeing them. I was really going with this. We never have a Bond movie where we haven't seen the villain by the hour mark. And here they push past that. It's like an hour before we finally get back to Blofeld. And it was too long. It was too long not to have seen him. If they're going for Goldfinger, Goldfinger showed up early. Yeah, I also missed Winton Kidd when we actually got back to Blofeld. And when they show up all of a sudden to do away with Bond, and then they disappear again for another 25 minutes. I was going with them as being the main villains in the movie. Why wouldn't I up until this point? Because they're the only faces we're seeing. I don't think there's ever a scene where Went and Kid go and actually take orders from Blofeld. They feel like they're in an entirely different movie. They have a different agenda. They are almost different criminals than Blofeld and his scheme. What's funny is I agree with you to the point that I thought they thought they worked for White. That it was orchestrated under White's name. Everybody thought White was ordering all of these different things done. I'm not positive they knew they were working for Blofeld. William White is a phantom. He's notorious for being this big mogul who has his hands in all kinds of enterprises and lives as a recluse at the top of his casino. No one has seen him for years. I think they're going for some kind of a Coward Hughes thing, right? The bungalow kind of stuff. He's drinking the milk. He's watching the films. He's being obsessive compulsive. My point is, I thought the villain could be, and maybe should be, Howard Hughes. You are dead on. It's supposed to be Howard Hughes. Cubby Broccoli got the idea in a dream. They all know Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes is a big fan and supporter of Cubby Broccoli's. They're alluding it's Hughes. They're not actually saying it's him. But you're absolutely right. And they don't want to make him a villain. Ultimately, when we find out he's just in hiding somewhere else, that Blofeld has taken his identity and stashed him away in his summer home, his Frank Lord Wright house, just outside of town. Exactly, because they actually know the guy who they're basing it on. They're not going to make their friend the villain of a Bond movie. But you get what I'm saying. It might be more fun to have a new villain with a new agenda and thinking of Howard Hughes, this great person that everyone loves, this eccentric who has done so much for aviation and movies and what have you, to turn him into a super megalomaniac bad guy. I think that could have been a fun choice. It's certainly more fun than watching this guy return as Blofeld. I like the concept of moving on to the new villain. The problem was, he just seemed so overshadowed in small time compared to Blofeld, who was already in this movie. I like the new villain, but again, much like Blofeld himself, the last movie, this guy felt like small potatoes. Try and connect these dots. Bond has killed the man that is supposed to be bringing in the diamonds back in Amsterdam. In his coffin, he smuggled the diamonds through... Those get brought to a mobster funeral home that is going to turn that into ash and diamonds, hand it to him in an urn. He brings it to the mausoleum, gets the check, and leaves. Like, this is a whole complicated setup. They're not even the henchmen again. We got one scene with these villains, and then we move on to Shady Elms, or whatever his name is, the stand-up comedian that gets bumped off. I mean, you get what I'm saying here. It's a never-ending string of sub-bad guys. Yes, but I was able to follow it at this point. It made complete sense to me. I really enjoyed how they smuggled the diamonds in. I actually learned something. It was kind of fun for me. If I'm going to smuggle diamonds, a dead body is a good way to do it. Now I know. Why would they smuggle James Bond's corpse to America? That doesn't make any sense. They lied about whose corpse it was. They said it was his brother and that they were returning him to the States. 
you asked what I like about Connery's performance. I love it when he's standing outside of the airplane talking about his dead brother. Oh, I didn't like that at all. I thought his line readings there were terrible. I thought it was obvious. I actually had that in my notes as I don't like Connery in this scene. Oh, I thought he was funny. And I also didn't like Felix in that scene either. I thought this is one of the worst Felixes we've seen yet. Oh, I agree. Bad Felix. Bad Felix. And they know it, too. They don't even give him any time. He's essentially here to reprimand Bond, and I think all he ever does is give him security to try and keep him in his hotel room, which he disobeys. This Felix does nothing. Gotta say, though, swirling around in all these sub-bad guys, did you guys recognize one? I didn't, but what's really funny is Marjorie was watching this with me, and she knew he was somewhere in there, and I had to go look after, because we've met Sid Haig... House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Rejects, at cons, and he always has pictures of him with Sean Connery there that he'll sign. And she somehow got in her brain. He was in Diamonds Are Forever. And so we looked, and finally after the credits, I had to go IMDB and then rewind and go, oh yeah, it kind of looks like him if I squint. He's the guy in the back seat of the car when they're driving Bond from the airport to the funeral home. Yeah, he's just a goon. I don't even think he gets a death scene. He just is helping transport the diamonds. But maybe it's just my feelings about Vegas in general. I just feel like this is a very unsatisfying place. My brother has a theory. After Goldfinger, anytime Bond comes to America, it's a bad thing. I'm going to try and test that as we go through the movies in the future. He may be on to something here because I don't like being here in Vegas. I think it's kind of fun from a perspective. I've been to Vegas many times. It's fun to see the strip as it used to be. It's kind of amazing that there's no pyramid or Eiffel Tower or stratosphere. When they look at it, it's almost barren. I'm like, wow, there's Caesars and Tropicana and a couple other, but there's almost nothing there. It's amazing to see how far it's come along in the 40 years from then and now. But man, this is not exciting stuff guys Stuart your brother did not come up with that theory it's famous to Bond files as the even and odd Star Trek movies and much like people say search for Spock is the best odd one there's like always an exception to the rule kind of thing Goldfinger's exception to the rule Here's the thing. I feel like in script form, the wackiness, the non sequiturs are the same as Goldfinger. Here, these scenes are disconnected. We literally get a scene where a woman's trying to smuggle diamonds while going through a haunted house and having a water balloon fight. It's bad stuff here. I'm enjoying it. I'm liking the randomness, the wackiness. It's feeling a little sketch comedy to me, but I'm really liking the performances and... I do think that Connery is buoyed by his supporting cast. Tiffany is good. I love Plenty O'Toole. I absolutely love her. I was so sad she didn't have more to do. I really thought she'd be the second Bond girl, and I liked her even more than I liked Tiffany. It breaks our rule. We actually said that the first girl to sleep with Bond dies. I was looking forward to her being the first Bond girl. She annoyed me so much. But when she goes out the window there, there's a pool underneath. No Bond girl dies here. She dies later in the movie. Oh, you're right. She's the one in the pool. Yeah. Yeah. But she doesn't die from falling in the pool this time. No. This is confusing. This, <laughs> come on. This movie is really messed up. There actually is a reason she didn't die. There was cut scenes with Lana Wood. They are on the two-disc DVD set, the ultimate edition. She actually, after falling in the pool, comes back upstairs. If you remember, Tiffany Case is already there. Yeah. And she comes back and discovers Tiffany Case is there. And why I'm even bringing this up is Plenty dies in the pool at Tiffany Case's house. Well, how does Plenty O'Toole know to go there? Well, because she goes in Tiffany Case's purse and looks at her wallet 
at the end of that cut scene. So you can then presume when Connery says it at the side of the pool, it's plenty. They thought she was you. They tried to kill her. That's how she knows where to find Tiffany Case. It's kind of a plot hole that none of us probably realized was there, but it's there. And now we have a reason. I didn't know it was there, but I was feeling the bumps in the road. Let me put it that way. I recognized there was a whole lot of information I wasn't getting or misdiagnosing as I was going through this plot. You know, then they go to a laboratory. They're following a scientist. He ends up crashing a staging of the moon landing. What is going on? That was really random. I have no clue what was going on with that. I thought they were filming the opening scenes to Superman. Or Superman 2, actually, when the villains come on the moon. I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. None of the extra material I have even brings it up. I have to assume they're practicing so they can set up the satellite? I mean, I have no idea. It's a popular conspiracy theory that we never landed on the moon, and this was the first Bond movie post-moon landing, so maybe they felt the need to play into that. They've certainly been tapping back into space. It's a trendy topic at the time, but I couldn't tell whether they were just testing the moon rover or whether they were actually filming something that was meant to believe that it was a new moon landing. Whatever it was... It comes random in a plot that I am struggling to find out how this ties into anything. It's feeble. I'm mad at this point. I just took it as James Bond has had a chase in so many things. What if he was in a chase in a moon buggy? That's all I took it as. They wanted him in a moon buggy, so they had a film studio. I mean, you say he's based on Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes made movies. And the ATVs that were following him were going so slowly. And at the time, ATVs were not well known. Now we know them. So that was a kind of a novelty thing. But goodness gracious, I wanted to get out and push those guys. Moon buggy can't be that fast, can it? Those things are meant to work in zero gravity. So in gravity, it could probably be 10 times as fast. I think my brother and I playing Bond on our big wheels was about as impressive as the way this thing comes off. You guys are saying you're liking little moments here. Let me be on the record. I'm disliking most everything that I'm seeing here. Were it not for Tiffany Case, I don't think that there's anything that has brightened my mood since we started the movie. What about the car going sideways and the chase through Las Vegas streets? I like that chase. (laughs) Did you? Uh, Okay. This is something they do when they go to America too, Brock, right? They have a sheriff that's always fat and stupid. You know, he's just hopelessly incompetent. They like to characterize American authority in this way. I thought it was kind of amusing. It reminded me of a lot of fights that we're going to see later. But no, I can't say that I loved it. There's no little Nelly here. I can tell you that. If the idea was the moon rover was this movie's version of the helicopter they had the last time, well, it's not working for me. As far as the chase goes, Arnie, did you notice that the car went into the alley on one set of wheels and then came out the other side on the other set of wheels? I did not notice that. In the original cut, which is on the DVD set, there were crowds lining up to watch James Bond film in Las Vegas, so they couldn't use the footage of him driving out of the alley on the right set of wheels. So they refilmed it, but they did it on the wrong side. So if you watch the movie again, in the middle of the scene, after it goes up on its two wheels, the insert shot of the two of them, and the camera tilts towards Sean Connery to imply that the car would change the wheels it's on. But physically speaking, a car could not transfer that way from one side of the wheels to the other, obviously. But it's a Bond movie, and you go with it because it's just an amazing stunt. But now, the next time you watch the scene, Arnie, you can't not see it now. I'm never going to rewatch that scene or this movie again. (laughs) 
Just a lot of tangents that go nowhere. You know, Blofeld and Bond finally meet. I could not believe it was Blofeld. I could not believe it was Blofeld because this Blofeld sucks. This is the worst Blofeld. He blows. He's terrible. And we're talking about last time how it's a whole different character than it was in You Only Live Twice. I could believe the character Donald Pleasance did was the same character as we saw the hand of petting the cat in the other movies. But then they go over to Tali Savalas and they go a complete different way with this guy here. Not only does he get a face transplant, he gets a personality transplant. Charles Gray is Blofeld. He's not menacing. He's not a brute. He's neither characterization we saw last time. He's just bland. Do we know why Telly didn't come back? And I'm not writing him a letter begging him. I'm just wondering. Like, was it they just didn't want ties to the last film? I have no confirmed reason why. Nothing official was said on any of the official places I looked or on a DVD. I'll do what we do and guess. I mean, if Sean Connery was so expensive, Telly Savalas was a name. And he might have been a more expensive name and they might have needed a cheaper actor. They definitely were cutting costs. I'm telling you, this movie looks cheap. This is hands down the cheapest looking Bond movie since Dr. No. I disagree. I think that there's a wonderful minimalization of blue screen and jump cuts. Maybe it's just because we're in the 70s and technology has improved, but I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as those early efforts. But to my point, we finally get Blofeld and Connery in the same scene. What's going to transpire? Will he finally reveal his plot? What's going on? They kind of have a nifty little guess the double moment. He scares the cat and whoever the cat runs to, he assumes is the real Blofeld. Well, there's a cat double too. I mean, that got a smile out of me, but (laughs) I'm wondering where this is all going now. Now that we've dawdled and hemmed and hawed and you've teased me about what all this diamond is. No, they put him in an elevator, gas him. Kid and Went are supposed to kill him. And their idea of doing that is to leave him in a construction site and let the welding robots take care of him. But again, isn't this something I'm not supposed to complain about? They never just put the bullet in his head, which is what they should have done. They should have used poison gas, not knockout gas, mustard gas. Arnie, I think this one you should question. Winton Kidd, we see them do it every single time in the rest of this movie. They actually make sure the person is dead, the scorpion. We don't see them kill Shady Tree, but we know they did. They leave the scene when the person is dead. They do not leave the person to die. That is not their M.O. Right. Even the old school teacher, you know, they're on the cruise ship passing by when they pull her body out of the river. Yeah, they're very thorough. This is not in their M.O. that they would be this slapdash. I mean, they go through so much trouble to drive all the way out there and then to just leave him asleep inside a pipe. That's dumb. I think there's a difference between can't be fun and enjoyable and let it go and things like that. There's a threshold. The movie has to set the tone for that on what the bullshit meter will let you get away with. And this one here, because I was questioning things from the get-go on what was going on, I wasn't able to let things ride as much. But this kid and Wint leaving Bond to die, again, it reeks of wrong for these two characters. Bond should have woken up as they were trying to kill him and done away with the two of them here because they disappear after this until the very end of the movie. That is a disappointing thing to me. I'm enjoying them so much That after this, yeah, they're gone, and I never forget them because I miss them every scene they're not in. Right. The epilogue's spoiled. I know they must come back for the very end surprise because it's palpable when they're not on screen. They are the kinds of villains that we're seeking. Maybe not exactly the kind, but the style of villain that we want that this Blofeld is not equaling. In the absence of Witten Kid, though, we do get two very memorable villains 
in, <laughs> I can't believe they used the names, but I'm so glad they did, Bambi and Thumper. <laughs> I was rolling. I couldn't believe Bambi and Thumper. <laughs> what a wonderful scene. This is great. Bond has two women, gymnastic, pliable women, beating the crap out of Bond. And it was fun to watch. Very. It was. I can't deny that. This is the kinds of battles we want to see. If the rest of the movie had equaled this, I would have been having a better time and not questioning the terrible mystery up to this point. I would have just been sailing with the rocket instead of riding on the bumpy road. But one thing I do have to ask both of you is, do you pick up why they start attacking Bond? Aren't they at the reclusive Howard Hughes-type character's place? Isn't that the whole point of why Bond's going there to find the real Willard White? And why are these two trying to kill him? I thought they were White's bodyguards. He's a recluse for a reason. They're the last line of defense to keep him reclusive. I thought they might work for Blofeld, though. They kind of keep White in seclusion. He probably doesn't want to mingle with people, but just in case he does, they're there to distract and keep anyone else away. They're there to ensure that White stays undiscovered while Blofeld takes his identity. Bambi and Thumper lead the way into the final climax at the oil rig off Baja. Right. This is where it all sort of happens. I won't say it comes together. This movie does not come together, but we get Blofeld. He gets away from the casino. He's escaped to an oil rig off Mexico to enact his master plan. It's a diamond-encrusted laser satellite. Normally, I'd love this kind of thing. I was loving this kind of thing. I absolutely loved that that was the use of the laser. So much better than a diamond-powered refrigerator. (laughs) But I think Blofeld may be the world's best criminal mastermind, but the world's worst kidnapper. Because Tiffany's there, she's allowed to sunbathe and steal cassettes. Bond is there. Instead of killing him, he's given a tour. I agree. I didn't get Tiffany Case was kidnapped at all. I got she was sitting there sunbathing. Why would he let her do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. He has some lines about she understands her situation. I think we're meant to understand after the last movie and this one that Blofeld is blinded by his passion. Bond likes a woman. He likes that same woman. And he's convinced that he can win her over by being the all-powerful dude of the universe. It's his Achilles heel, really. I can see where you got that from, and certainly it could be implied, but I don't think they play that up enough, if that's the case. They really don't. I would have preferred another line like we got in From Russia With Love, where, I could kill you, and you know it, but first, I'm going to enjoy seeing you squirm as I tell you everything. You know, give me a line like that that tries to explain why Blofeld's being such a frickin' moron! And the way Bond gets him, he's in that sub and he keeps bashing him against the wall. That's also anticlimactic. This whole scene is supposed to be one wonderful battle scene. But as Stuart so astutely said, it just happens and it just ends. And I have no real stake in what's going on here. Oh, but I love the mini sub. I love the fight. I love that we think Blofeld's going to get away yet again. I really was into this. In a fun way. Was I biting my nails on the edge of my seat? No. Was I having a good time? Absolutely, because it's ridiculous. You know what this is really missing here is a good gadget. Q's here. God knows why. He's playing slot machines. He's robbing casinos with his gadgets. (laughs) He does not give Bond anything cool to do. All he's had this whole movie is fake fingerprints and a voice box. This climax becomes an absurd slapstick about who put in what cassette. 
Yeah, but those fingerprints were so cool. I love that surprise. And every time I watch the movie, I somehow forget what a great reveal with those fingerprints. But I do agree with you. They really needed some more cue gadgets here. But then again, Stuart, wouldn't the car be better off having it? The car he drove through Las Vegas, the Ford Mustang. They should have had some more gadgets on there or something. It would make more sense. If he pulls out a gadget here, it would have felt completely tacked on. I just say, give me something, is really all I'm asking, Bragg. I just feel like you needed to have Bond win this fight. And instead, he takes a couple turns on the crane. The stuff about the cassette and dropping it down her bikini and all of that, that stuff is horrible. I enjoyed the misdirection of it. I enjoyed the fact that he had the tape and he was winning and then she puts it back and she's trying to hide it in that bikini bottom. Like, that's really a great place to hide it. Just so much fun. I like that Blofeld figured it out. If they got away with that, I think it would have played bad for me. And I love that he figured it out because he was checking out her ass. (laughs) But I would go along with this more if I enjoyed more of the movie up to this point. I think it really is the momentum of the movie at this point. I'm ready for the movie to be over because I have not enjoyed pretty much the second half of this movie. I pretty much checked out of this one. I'll say that my fun with this movie lagged. Once the assassins left, I was still riding the wave, but the momentum had left. And by the time that we started to get to this, I was ready for things to go a little faster. I cannot deny that. And we all get our wish because blow up the platform and it ends right quick. But fortunately, yes, my favorite characters come back for one encore performance. I wish they could have continued to the next movie just to have more of them. But no, we get them serving a wonderful dinner scene and a final, just so engaging Bruce Glover performance. I want to see more of this man's work. I think you've slightly overstated this. Due to your love with a long history of watching Crispin Glover movies, you're magnetizing this tiny performance in this largely bad movie as being far more than it is. But I'm not going to deny that he isn't one of the brighter spots, at least if you're looking for goofy thrills. This is a cheap laugh, but it's not great. Nothing here is great. I didn't like the way that he was killed. You mentioned it before, the bomb up the balls. It's really a little too much. I liked the kid caught fire. That was really cool. I don't know where they were at with full body burns and stunts back in the 70s. I know they were pretty new in the 80s. They're 20 years past thing from another world. Okay. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) But it still looks really good in color. Yeah, and the actor did it when it was on his arms, when it caught far off the rest of him, it's a stuntman. Yeah, I could see his face real clearly and loved it and loved the fear in his eyes and all of that. But unfortunately, when it came time for Mr. Wint to die, they have to go for a bent over and he smiles with pleasure as his balls are crushed. And then he has a bomb shoved up his ass and blows up. Those gay guys get what they deserve. I mean, it is what it is. It's an ugly stereotype. At least they brought something to the part, whereas Blofeld came empty-handed. I agree completely. I'm not going to let the unglamorous death overshadow the magnetic performance of Bruce Glover. I liked him very much as well. I have to admit, I had a big smile on my face as the camera panned over to the portholes and you saw their two faces. I'm like, oh, good. And I do enjoy when they come in with the dinner thing. It's a lot of fun. That scene plays very well. And only because 
of what these two did for the rest of the movie for me. They are a huge highlight in this movie, and I think they did everything they should do. I think they could work in other Bond movies as well, even though they're playing it bigger than we've seen before. Well, what's coming, they certainly could fit in just fine. Well, I hope so, because I liked them, and maybe that means I'll like what's coming, too. At the very beginning of this podcast, I mentioned they were going for a big Goldfinger theme, and they did something here they have not done very often. They actually brought back a singer to do another title song, Shirley Bassey. Now, last time, Stuart, you were pretty much ready to have Shirley Bassey's baby with the way you were talking about how much you loved Goldfinger. Are you as big a Diamonds Are Forever fan as you are the theme for Goldfinger? Absolutely not. I miss the cophony. What you guys cite as noise and irritation, it was the brassy voice paired with those brassy instruments. And here, I just think the tune is kind of dull. It's a par theme. It's not bad. It's not good. If I were teaching someone how to play piano, I'd teach them this song because I think there's only three notes in it. Ding, 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 ding. There's not a lot going on here. I think she sings it well. I do think she is by far the most exceptional singer they've had do any theme, but not a great song. It's a come down from Goldfinger. But then again, so is this whole movie. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was good. I wouldn't put it on my iPod or anything, but I kind of liked it. You're going to compliment this song. I'm going to make you download this and play it. Oh, I downloaded it. I just don't have it on my iPod. It's on my hard drive. Diamonds are forever. It's melodic. It's fine. It's one of the better ones we've heard thus far. What I don't like about this song is forever, forever. The way she says forever really gets me. I do agree it's catchy and melodic. What Stuart said hit the nail on the head for me. It is a middle-of-the-road James Bond theme song. I would agree, but everything before here has been either middle or low side of the road. So it's up there as one of the best so far this series. Kanye West agrees with you. He did sample it for his Diamond song about Sierra Leone. But to me, it just sounds like it's destined to be played over a jewelry store commercial. You're so right. (laughs) I certainly wouldn't buy jewelry for... Get your gold finger on. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Diamonds Are Forever, Forever? Stuart. Never. Um, (laughs) This is pretty bad. I had a real miserable time with this one. It was a real struggle. Who thought that you'd be nostalgic for Lazenby? But I was. I missed him. I missed the idea that they could take Bond into that more stark, serious, hippie generation feel. Going back to the camp, you can't go back again. Connery's not willing to go back again. He's not playing it for fun. He's having a bad time. I'm having a bad time watching him get through this. It just ends up feeling like... James Bond, the TV episode. It just feels like something they could have shot for regular pay television for not much less money than what it took to put this on the screen. It's pretty miserable. I can say for the official ones, it is the first time we've had a terrible Bond. I didn't recommend Dr. No, and I didn't recommend Thunderball, but they had aspects that I enjoyed. This diamond is completely fake. Strong not recommend. Arnie. Stuart, when I put that golden gun to your head and made you watch all that TV stuff, what you were fond of saying is TV must be compulsively watchable. Now you're saying this should be TV, and I say, if it was, I'd watch next week, because this is compulsively watchable. I am having a good time with this movie. It certainly is not the best action of the series. I can't really think of a whole lot of action that happened in here. But that's irrelevant, because I'm liking the characters, I'm liking the characterizations, I'm liking the aloof wackiness 
Blofeld sucks here. I can't deny that. And I had the same problem in Goldfinger that I didn't think Goldfinger was as good. But Goldfinger had Odd Job, and this guy had Winton Kid, And those two just create a mood that continues throughout Vegas. You know, I'd kind of equate this movie to Vegas. It's kind of cheap. It's kind of superficial. You don't want to stay there for too long, but it's a nice vacation. My second favorite Bond film so far in the series, Behind From Russia With Love, recommend. And Arnie, audiences agreed with you when this movie came out. Audiences really ate this up at the time. I agree with you that Winton Kidd are a highlight of this movie. For me, they really are. I revisit this movie seldomly because I just find it boring. It just feels so average. I'm not having the fun that Arnie had in this movie. And I'm all for having a lighthearted, entertaining Bond. I enjoy my more serious Bonds, like I said last episode, certainly do. But I enjoy a good old-fashioned fun fest. If it entertains me, I'm there. But I could not get entertained by this movie. The tone of it was off from the beginning. And I just could not salvage a recommend for this based on the two henchman characters. I can't do it. My Bond moments are there. It's not a complete waste. I do have some great stunts. I do have some great Connery Bond moments. But they're few and far between and way too few and far between for me to enjoy what Connery's doing here. I'm giving this a solid not recommend. I really did not enjoy watching this movie. I suggest if you have an opportunity, if you can just see the scenes of Winton Kidd, you could enjoy those separately from the entire movie as a whole. I really do. They are the highlight of this thing, which is strange for me to say that because they are some of the least liked Bond villains of diehard Bond fans, from my experience anyway. People just don't like them. I think they're a blast. You can let us know what you think about Winton Kid and Diamonds Are Forever in general by going over to our forums. You can find a link to that at nowplayingpodcast.com. Join the conversation there. We're also going to be on Facebook and Twitter, of course. You can find us all over social media everywhere. And if you like our shows, please go to iTunes and leave us a positive review so other people like yourself can find us and enjoy us as well. Connery is one and done again. They are back in the exact same position they were at the end of You Only Live Twice. they got to find a new Bond. What are they going to do? Are they going to change the tone of the series completely? Are they going to try to throw back to classic Connery? They are in a serious spot here, but this time they seem to be a little more prepared going in, or so we would hope. Do we know why Connery said no again? And why they couldn't convince him like they convinced him for this movie to come back yet again. More importantly to me, does this director come back? He's done Goldfinger, he's done this one. I've given both recommends. I know we don't see Bond. Do we see the director? Yep, he comes back for the next two movies, actually. All right, I'm game. They carry over a lot of things, Arnie. One of them is a director, and so we'll see exactly how well he does with a new James Bond as we enter the Moore era in our next podcast. Now playing will return with Live and Let Die. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing James Bond retrospective series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Talk here, listen here. 
So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. Starring Sean Connery, Jill St. John, Charles Gray, Lana Wood, Jimmy Dean, and directed by <laughs> I love that sausage King of Chicago. <laughs> I love these two. They have outdone Oddball as favorite henchmen for me. Say odd job. They have <laughs> Oddball's a clone pilot. Yeah, I I think that yes, they're gay, Stuart. But again, I'm agreeing with Larney. Larney? I'm agreeing with Arnie. To, yeah, Larney with Oddball. <laughs> I'm agreeing with Arnie. And all I could think of was, you know, if he wanted to be distracted, there's that Austin Power line that I'll apply here. He could thump her now, or he could thump her later. <laughs>